Well, I want to ask, uh, invite you to, to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Lamentations chapter 3. Um, if you are using the, the Blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, you can find that on page 688. The title of our sermon this morning is, What is Happiness? And the key words for our worshipers in training are affliction, sorrow, It's a land of deserts, pits, and drought that is covered by the shadow of death. And we're told that Christian was was worse put to it there in the valley of the shadow of death than in his fight with the foul fiend Apollyon. As Christian journeys through the valley of the shadow of death, he, he has to avoid a very deep ditch on his right hand, and a very dangerous quag on his left. It is an exceedingly narrow path, and of course covered by the shadow of death, a very dark path, pitch dark. The only light ever provided in this valley is from the very flames of hell that leap up in the midst of the valley on occasion. In this darkness, as Christian travels through it, he is so confounded by the darkness that he cannot even perceive his own voice. But he often mistakes the voice of the enemy fiends who who gather behind him and, and whisper grievous blasphemies that he begins to think are proceeding from his own mind, that he himself is uttering these awful things against the Lord. But then he stops and he calls upon the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and eventually he finds help and deliverance, and shortly thereafter he steps out into the light. Well, we come now to the third poem in this book of laments. The third poem of Lamentations, wherein we must travel through this same valley. So let me read for you the first 18 verses of Lamentations 3. The poet writes, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day Long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and 
made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. I'd like you to consider three things with me from this text this morning. First, in the very first verse, we are going to see the poet identify with the people of Jerusalem. And then second, in verses 2 through 13, we'll see the poet recount the acts of the Lord against him using several different powerful images. And third, in verses 14 through 18, we'll see the poet describe the effects these actions have on him. So the poet identifies with the people. We see the the acts of the Lord recounted against him. And then we see the effects that these acts have on him in these first 18 verses. So look with me then in the first place of verse 1 where we see the poet's identification with the people. If you recall, uh, we concluded Lamentations 2 um, by noting that uh, Lady Zion, this, the narrator's uh, conversation partner in the first two poems, Lady Zion, uh, having been asked in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, to cry out to God by the poet, by the narrator, she falls silent. She does cry out, but then she falls silent after only three stanzas in verses 20 through 22. And in summary, those stanzas uh, don't offer much hope. She essentially accuses God of violating his covenant with Judah, violating his covenant with humanity itself, and calls his very holiness into question. And she concludes simply by asserting that God had become her enemy. So she does cry out to God, as I said, but it's not in the way that the poet or that we would have hoped. Now, I want to mention something here briefly that uh, if, if you didn't hear the, the sermon from uh, the end of Lamentations chapter 2, it might not make a ton of sense, but if you were here, uh, there was something that I should have mentioned that I didn't mention that I want to bring up now that I think will, will provide some clarity um, if the end of the, uh, the poem was confusing at all to you. When we started our journey through this book back in the beginning of October, I said that there's this conversation that's taking place between uh, the, the poet or the narrator of these poems and uh, this personified uh, woman city representing uh, Jerusalem. And this is particularly true in the first two poems. And I said that you can tell who is speaking by the quotation marks that are offered in the first two poems. But at the, in the ESV, at the end of the second poem, there is sort of a question about where the, the quotes should go. And so if you think about leading up to that point, in chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 11, we have the poet speak with two brief interruptions from the woman, and then she speaks at length in verses 12 through 22. And then in chapter 2, the poet speaks all the way from verse 1 all the way through verse 19. Though the, the, the object, the, the, his audience changes a bit, but he's speaking all the way through verse 19. And then she speaks in verses 20 through 22 before falling silent. As I mentioned, the ESV somewhat confusingly only has verse 19 in quotes, 
as you can see there. Um, the NIV or the NLT more helpfully um, note that it's verses 20 and 22 um, where the woman speaks. She speaks um, only for, for three verses, and so uh, the quotes aren't uh, you know, inspired. They're put in later, and so I just wanted to make that comment in case that's been plaguing you for two weeks. Um, and um, so now here we are into chapter 3 where there's less of a conversation that's taking place and more of uh, the man uh, speaking in light of what has just happened, right? So he's, in light of the, the woman's feeble prayer, her response to God, the, the poet interjects himself more prominently and he officially announces himself as a character in this story. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction. So he, he speaks and he, he gives a more biblical voice, as we will see, to the pain experienced by Jerusalem because the, the woman, his conversation partner, had failed to do so. And so in this identification with his people, the poet offers a powerful exploration of two vast realities. Human suffering and evil on the one hand, and divine compassion and goodness on the other. The poem as a whole is wrapped in wrath and extreme suffering. Right? We see this very clearly in verse 1 and also in verse 66 at the very end where he calls upon God to destroy his enemies in anger from under the heavens. So the poem is wrapped in wrath and extreme suffering. But as you work toward the center of the book, this is where we will find the only explicit words of hope in the entire book. Sorry, you work to the center of this poem. This is where we will find the only explicit words of hope in the entire book, particularly in verses 22 through 24 and 31 through 33. And so this sandwiching of hope in between expressions of anguish, uh, and you see this especially as we go on into poems 4 and 5 as well, sandwiching hope in between these expressions of anguish is emotionally and theologically significant. As one author put it, the only words of hope in the entire book are quite intentionally surrounded on both sides by words of uncomforted pain, not yet forgiven sin, and ongoing suffering. So extraordinarily, in this poem, these two realities, the agony experienced by humans in this fallen world and the love and compassion of God, in this book and in this poem, these two things meet and embrace. Now the way the poem unfolds is fairly simple. As we've noted before, this is also an acrostic where every uh, now it's every three verses has... Uh, the, the next letter of the alphabet. So it, all the way through, there's 22 sections of three lines where each of the three lines begins with the next letter of the alphabet. And then the way it unfolds content-wise, in the first 18 verses, the poet, in solidarity with Jerusalem, explores the extreme suffering of Jerusalem through personal, subjective, first-person language. He, he explores the suffering in graphic and, and heart-wrenching terms. 
this section under our consideration this morning, the first 18 verses of this third poem, uh, especially if you consider them at all with the, the last three verses of the second poem, they work to bring about the darkest expressions in the entire book, concluding with the admission that the poet himself has forgotten what happiness is. And he says, as hope from the Lord has perished. And so you wonder, is he going the way of this, of Lady Zion? But as they say, it's, it's always darkest before dawn. Because just when we think the poet himself is going to fail to hold on to his faith in the Lord, he offers powerful words of hope and resilience Beginning in verse 19. Verses 19 through 39 largely explore the goodness and the compassion of God and therefore the hope of those who wait for God in their suffering. The poet then in verses 40 through 66 moves to repent. And he, he, he frames repentance as this transform this what brings about the transformation of God's wrath against his people into an expectation of wrath against his people's assailants the way the poet patiently and purposefully works through his own grief and suffering and faith is crucial for us to understand and to employ in our own lives lamentations 1 1 through 3.18 is absolutely essential, as is Lamentations 3.40 through 5.52. These two sections of the book are absolutely essential if we are going to receive full benefit that's offered to us in Lamentations 3.19 through 39. And it's also true that we need Lamentations 3.19 through 39 to get the benefit of the bookends. As we said, too many Christians, especially here in the comfortable West, we've largely ignored Lamentations, except perhaps for Lamentations three twenty-two through twenty-four, which that might only you might we might not even know that only because of a song like "Great Is Thy Faithfulness," which is based on it. And we're worse off for not knowing Lamentations. If we don't know Lamentations, we we, we don't know how to lament. We don't know how to cry out to God. So my prayer, as is probably obvious if you've been with us for any length of time through this book, is that for us here at RBC, I pray that that would not be so. That we would know how to lament. That we would know how to cry out to God. And that we would reap the full benefit and reward of this book. And so I want to look with you now. So we've seen this identification of the poet with his people and, uh, and the importance of that. And we'll come back to it at the end. But I want to look now in verses 2 through 13 where we see the poet enter into the suffering of his people and speak for them. So in the second place here, we see him recount the acts of the Lord against him using several powerful and disturbing, disturbing images. As we saw in the opening of Lamentations 2, the poet opens the third poem with a long list of aggressions enacted by the Lord. Though the Lord isn't named 
until verse 18. And there, there are three images that I want you to, to consider with me from these uh, through verse 13 here. Uh, first, in verses 2 through 6, we see the man lament the darkness into which the Lord has led him. Book ending verses 2 through 6 are references to darkness. Do you see that? In verse 2, he's driven and brought me into darkness without any light. In verse 6, he's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. So book ending these verses are references to darkness. And, um, and what is the man's experience in between these references to darkness? Well, like Christian on his pilgrimage, it's nothing short of pure agony. In the dark, his flesh and skin waste away. His bones are broken. He's besieged and surrounded by bitterness and tribulation. Darkness is a prevalent theme in, uh, in all of Scripture. And it's a clear marker of the absence of, of God. And, and it's the absence of good. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. The darkness is where evil dwells. Where sin occurs. Darkness generally is representative of all that is bad. And this is where the poet says God has made him to dwell. God has set my residence in the dark. And in that darkness, the poet endures nearly unspeakable physical and emotional damage. He says he is malnourished and sickly with feeble and brittle bones that break easily and And this leaves him enveloped by bitterness and misery. So that's one image. Darkness. A second in verses 7 through 9, he he switches metaphors here and he he describes God as a cruel jailer. God, he says, has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's laid heavy chains upon me. The man then cries out to his jailer, but his cries are ignored. His paths are blocked, and he says, and his paths are blocked, and and if I may attempt to coin a term here, they are intraversible. Not only has the Lord left the man in darkness, not only has he chained him up and locked him down in prison, but even if he gets out, the roads are exceedingly dangerous. The man is stuck in his suffering. And yet we see the plot thicken even further in verses 10 through 13 where we see a third shift in imagery. The Lord, according to the man, was not content merely to blind and imprison him. He set about like a lion, like a bear, waiting for him. So not only in this man's experience is he dwelling in complete darkness with chains holding him down surrounded by impenetrable walls and dangerously crooked paths should he somehow manage to escape that manage to make his way through the dangerously crooked paths he would still then be hunted down to death Throughout these opening verses of Lamentations 3, there is a heartbreaking 
reversal that has taken place. David, in Psalm 23, expressed great hope in God. He says what? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The the shepherd then leads the sheep into green pastures and beside still waters. The shepherd uses his rod and his staff to protect the sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, Lamentations 3 opens with the rod of the shepherd being used not to protect the sheep, but to beat and brutalize them. His hand is against me all day long. The shepherd then leads them not into tranquility, green pastures and still waters, but into turmoil, into darkness into imprisonment, into danger. And then in in verses 12 and 13, the Lord, still the predator here, instead of shooting down the attacking enemy, the attacking wolf or lion, He sets His sights on the poor sheep, attempting to escape His cruel captor. He says the rogue shepherd drives the arrow deep into the poor animal's vital organs. There is a great agony in misery that is felt and expressed here in these verses. Now, the poet here doesn't specifically name the reason for these things, but as, as we've seen in the first two poems, these, this response is to the sin of Jerusalem, the continued rebellion of the people against God. And so the, the poet recognizes here that the Lord has become like an enemy. He has blinded and imprisoned His people, and He has hunted down to death those who managed to escape. And it's agonizing. And we see that because then he he turns to explore the effect that these acts have had upon him. So look with me in the third place, verses 14 through 18, where we see the results of these acts of aggression. First, in verses 14 and 15, the result is embarrassment and bitterness. The man, he says, I have become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. We saw this back in Lamentations 2, didn't we? If you remember in verse 13, he, he attempts to comfort the grieving woman, the weeping woman. Failing to do so, he then recounts how all who pass by her clap their hands at her. They hiss, they wag their heads, and they cry out, Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? Then he says that her enemies rejoiced and railed against her, hissing and gnashing their teeth. They say, We have swallowed her. This is the day we have longed for. Now we have it. We see it. Well, the man expressing a solidarity with the city tells how he has experienced these taunts as well. 
He's the laughingstock of all peoples. He's the object of mockery all day long. And, and it fills him with, with bitterness. He's embarrassed and resentful. He is ashamed. He says, I've been sated with wormwood. Wormwood, of course, is a, a bitter herb. It, it has some medicinal purposes, but uh, that is clearly not what he has in mind here. Um, a quick Google search will tell you this. Apparently, wormwood contains the chemical, to take a stab here, thujone, it's T-H-U-J-O-N-E, which is, may be poisonous. The thujone in wormwood oil excites the central nervous system and can cause seizures and other adverse effects. So these acts of God have left the poet experiencing acute bitterness, acute shame, and acute agony. But he isn't just resentful. He's not just bitter about these things. In verses 16 and 17, we see that he's also anxious. He's fearful and depressed. The opening line in verse 16 is quite graphic. The Lord, he says, has made his teeth to grind on gravel. I don't know if you've ever tried to eat rocks before, but I can only imagine that it is very unpleasant. Now this line about his teeth grinding on gravel is either a metaphor for a particularly, or it's not even really a metaphor, it's just a literal statement of a particularly grotesque kind of torture where prisoners were forced to eat gravel, or it's an image of, it's just an image of one's head being crushed underfoot by an enemy combatant, right? We, we use the language, right, to, to eat dirt is, is, uh, is about abasement. So it could be that, or, or maybe he's thinking of something very specific here that he had seen, perhaps even endured literally himself by the Babylonians. Either way, it leads to a very predictable and understandable response from the man. Fear, anxiety, and depression. He's cowering in ashes. He's afraid. His soul is bereft of peace. He's anxious. And he forgets what happiness is. Or, literally, he forgets what goodness is. And he's the question for us is, is has, he, has he slipped into a full-blown depression at this point? And it would seem so because these thoughts, these internal observations that he has made up to this point through verse 17, they, they make their way into spoken words in verse 18 where he says out loud, really just to himself, not to anyone in particular, just to himself, he, he utters these feeble words, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. His depression has fallen into total despair. He has nothing left, not even the Lord. And it's interesting that he waits until now to actually name the subject of these previous verses. And I think it's important what happens next. 
but we will not get to that quite yet today. You know, if, you're, if you were hearing this for the first time, right, if, if, the, if the first time you ever heard or read Lamentations, imagine you're, you're sitting there, someone is reading it out loud to you, and you hear verse 18, my endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. One, well, you, you'd probably expect one of two things. First, you might think that the poet, like Lady Zion, has now run out of words. He's given up the endeavor altogether. He tried to help. He tried to uh, find some solidarity with her and failed. He tried acknowledging the misery of the woman in the first poem. He tried there also to give her ample space to speak. In the second poem, he tried comforting the woman At the end of the second poem, he tried imploring her to call out to God. All of these utter failures to produce anything meaningful in her. And so has this last attempt, this attempt of solidarity, of saying, I suffer with you. Has it also failed merely bringing him down with her? Has his exploration of and expression of his own misery brought him so low that he decides not to speak any longer because what good is it going to do anyway? Has he fallen into the same trap as this woman that he has sought to comfort? Obviously, you can see that there's a verse 19 and following, and so you know that's not the case. But if we put ourselves here and we're hearing it read the first time, maybe so. So maybe we think that, or maybe we might expect like we saw with Lady Zion, that he's not done speaking yet, but there is an outburst of anger and accusation coming. Maybe that's what comes next for the poet. And we won't explore this morning what he does say, but we'll simply note that praise God, like Christian did in the valley... The poet here opts for neither of these two choices, to fall into utter silence or to accuse God of having done him wrong. He chooses a third path. So I'll just plug the sermon for next week. If you find yourself struggling now with bitterness, anxiety, depression, or despair, come back next week for a long look at the remedy. Well, what I want to do now, in closing, is I want to offer uh, basically two lessons that we can learn from these verses under our consideration this morning. We saw at the end of Lamentations 2 what it looks like to speak, um, to speak about our suffering from a place of unbelief. Here is an example of what it means to speak about our suffering from faith. Now, in the first 18 verses, you might not know that, but what we have in the rest of this poem tells us that that is true. And so the poet is speaking from faith here, but what's striking about that reality is that what he says isn't vastly different in the words he uses here. It's not vastly different from what Lady Zion had said in the second poem. The poet doesn't hold back in describing the fierce aggression of the Lord against him. The poet is painfully aware of God's anger against sin. 
The poet does not shy away from acknowledging God's involvement in his suffering. But as we'll see next week, Lord willing, he doesn't allow his suffering to completely overcome him. So the lesson here is that we can and we should speak frankly about our suffering. We can remember that God, as we've said before, has broad enough shoulders to cry upon. A big enough chest to beat against. We should resist the urge to minimize our suffering. We can speak honestly, frankly, and openly about it. And that is really the first step toward healing in many cases. So that's one lesson. A second lesson, and really this is perhaps not as much of a lesson to learn, but a connection that I want us to make. There is something awfully familiar sounding as we consider this man and the affliction that he has seen. There are striking similarities between the man who has seen affliction in Lamentations 3 and the man of sorrows in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. As well as the experiences of Lady Zion stated earlier in this book. Chris Wright offers an exceedingly helpful summary of the way in which the experiences of of Lady Zion and the man here in Lamentations 3 find echoes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is explicitly said to be in Luke 22, among other places, he is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Here's what Wright says. He says, Jesus not only wept like Lady Zion over Jerusalem, like her, he also suffered desertion by his friends, mockery from his enemies, and apathy from passers-by. Like her, he was stripped naked, publicly exposed and humiliated, with none to comfort. Like her, he suffered all this at the hands of an implacable foreign enemy, wielding idolatrous imperial power through blood and brutality. Was there indeed, he asked, any suffering like his? that the Lord laid on him in the day of his fierce anger. Like her, Christ became unclean, defiled by sin that was not his own, because God made him to be sin for us. Wright then says, Like the man in Lamentations 3, Christ felt the blows of a rod, the tearing of his flesh, the impotence of an inescapable prison on the cross, piercing, mockery, bitterness, and gall. Like the man too, however, Christ could and did entrust himself to the God of ultimate faithfulness and compassion, knowing that he would not be cast off forever. He says, Jesus died in agony, no doubt, but he did not die in despair. So if nothing else, I pray that you would take away from this sermon today that the Lord Jesus knows your pain. He has identified with his people and experienced their suffering with them and more importantly, for them.
The man in Lamentations 3 primarily suffers with his people. The servant in Isaiah suffers for his people. And so Christ, the the antitype of these types, the sufferer who suffers with his people and the sufferer who suffers for his people, are brought together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question for each of us here this morning is this. Have we, have you looked with faith to the man of affliction who suffered with you and the man of sorrows who suffered for you? If the Babylonian invasion, which is the historical event that precipitated this book, if the Babylonian invasion and destruction of Jerusalem anticipates the cross, the return from exile, 70 years later, anticipates the resurrection. And so it's crucial that you remember, that I remember, that we remember that Christ not only suffered and died so that sinners like us might be forgiven if we put our faith in Him, but Christ was also raised to newness of life so that all who put their trust in Him might conquer the grave with Him. So come one, come all. If you are weary and heavy laden this morning, Christ offers you rest. If you are burdened with sin and sorrow, flee to Jesus Christ. Find forgiveness. Find healing. Find hope. So do that for the first time, perhaps, if you've never done it before. If you don't know how, come and ask. We're happy to talk with you about it. But if you're a Christian this morning and you're like, I I, I love Jesus, but I am still suffering. Well, go to Him again. And remember that He suffered with you and for you. And in Him, and in Him alone, we can find the, the hope that seemingly perishes in our suffering. And so, Lord willing, next week we will consider the turn that takes place here in this poem.